love coach. Let's find out if you're ready for love. Here's your marvelous host, Nikki Lee. Hello and welcome to Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Now today, being that it's Valentine's Week, I have to do something special. And my regular listeners know I always do something very out of the box for Valentine's Day. Now, the usual hearts and flowers, that's just not me. I've got to do something different. So people that listen to my show on a regular basis, too, know that a couple years ago I had a major health crisis and major health emergency, and I had an aortic dissection. Now, that was huge. I, I can truly tell you that I haven't had anything that monumental health-wise happen to me ever, and, and I really, truly hope I never have something that big happen to me again. But ever since then, I've been learning more and more and more about the condition, the, the aftermath, to say the least, and recuperating and recovering and meeting a lot of awesome people in the meantime, and just learning what it's like to deal with any kind of um, health condition that's associated with your heart and just how that impacts every aspect of your life and how it impacts relationship and how it impacts intimacy with other people. And yes, it impacts your sex life too. And through a fanta- actually several fantastic support groups um, on Facebook, I've met some great people, and I've also heard people talking about their concerns. Some they've addressed with their doctors, some they haven't for various reasons. It's about what they can do, what they can't do, you know, concerns about their everyday life, and a lot of a lot of things like that. And actually, before I went to the doctor and found out what was wrong with me, I posted a picture on Facebook because posted a picture of my leg really swollen up really bad to the point where you, you couldn't even tell where my, my leg and ankle and everything kind of started and ended. And nobody had any idea what was wrong, including me. I had no idea. But I posted, I'm like, help you all. What in the world is wrong with me? Well, come to find out that was one of the signs of the fact that that there was something radically wrong with my heart and that my aorta had dissected. And we're going to talk today about the signs of heart failure in women because so many people don't have any idea about this. And this, this is all very near and dear to my heart, literally and figuratively. So what I did... And I thought it was just, it was too neat of an idea to do this the week of Valentine's Day because we're all thinking about hearts in various ways. So I'm figuratively thinking about your heart this week. So what I did is I reached out to Karen Anderson, who is part of Aortic Hope, which is an organization helping people to understand more about aortic health and dissections and aneurysms. And she got me in touch with Dr. Stacy Fisher, who is a cardiologist at the University of Maryland Medical System in Baltimore. So, Dr. Fisher, it's great to have you with me today. Well, thank you for having me here. I've had a hard time finding a doctor willing to come on and talk to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I'm very glad to have you with me. 
having a heart doctor on Valentine's week was just, it was too tempting. I just I had to do it. <laughs> it does make sense. <laughs> so have I, have I said anything wrong so far? Oh, no. Okay, good. I was going through that course. She's going to say I messed up. No. Awesome. awesome. Okay. You know, I, I posted that picture and I've still got it on my phone so I can show it to people. And it, once I figured out what was wrong and how serious my condition was, and I realized so many women on Facebook saw that picture and didn't realize what was wrong, and I, so many of them that I care about so much, that scared me. And I'm like, man, some of these people that I care about didn't realize that was a sign of heart failure. I'm like, I've got to help people understand the signs of heart failure because if one of these people was dealing with the same problem, and I could have helped them know what the problem was and could have helped them get to the hospital to be treated, and I didn't do that, I, I, I would never forgive myself. So we're going to help them. Tonight we're going to help them understand, aren't we? I think that's an awesome goal. And, you know, again, women don't look at themselves well enough. They look at everybody around them. Exactly. But a lot of times they just kind of look over or don't address the things that are bothering them. Right. And hopefully from today uh, we're going to have people speak up and say something's wrong. What is it? Right. Exactly. And if and if people aren't listening to you, speak louder. Talk <laughs> <Yes. laughs> up and speak up for yourself. So that's that what's that's what we're doing. And this this week is all about love and caring. So if there's somebody in your life that you know that isn't hearing this and they need to, the show is going to be archived after tonight, so share it with them if you need to later on. And it will be on my website. It will be on all the top podcast directories. It will be on my website. So if you need to, I'm going to tell you several times to, during the show, but go to readyforloveradio.com slash heartconcerns, and you can get the archive after the show airs tonight. We're going to touch on a lot of different things, but I think... One of the top things, let's start off with the whole medicine sort of issue, because this is, this is something a lot of people deal with. And this, I, I still remember vividly when the doctor walked in, because I, I have horrible headaches, and I know a lot of people depend on anti-inflammatories. After my surgery, they told me, no more ibuprofen. And I, I, I looked at the doctor, I'm like, okay, you've got to be kidding me. So, and, and this, this came up a lot when I was asking people for questions that, that we were going to pose to you today. And I know people take anti-inflammatories for a lot of different, a lot of different situations, a lot of different pain. What, tell, tell me what the deal is with that and what are the alternatives? That's a great question and a really tough question and something that does affect not only people with aortic dissection, but people with vascular disease and coronary disease. Right. So the studies looking at drugs in the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory class like Motrin, ibuprofen, naproxen, which is Aleve, the COX-2 inhibitors, which are Celebrex, um, or the, the kind of the hybrid drugs like Mobic, which is Meloxicam, all of those drugs have been shown to slightly increase the risk of another coronary event or stroke in people that have vascular disease. In dose and time-dependent ways, 
there is increased risk of inciting other vascular events. And initially we thought because they also can affect platelets similar in a way to aspirin, that maybe they would actually be protective drugs and reduce inflammation and improve the environment that the vessels are seeing. But in fact, they're actually shown to worsen outcomes. So we really do try to avoid and minimize the use of this class of drugs, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. That is different than aspirin. So people can take higher dose aspirin as long as their stomach's okay with it. Um, again, things like uh, ibuprofen or aspirin, all of them can upset the stomach lining and can be ulcerogenic. So you have to see how your stomach is actually tolerating them. Um, but higher dose aspirin may be an alternative. Tylenol is certainly the safer drug as long as you take it within the prescribed amounts that are safe. Um, Tylenol can really reduce inflammation in the background so that you don't need as much of the other type of drug um, as much or as often. Uh, and then if somebody has um, something like an autoimmune disease, sometimes we have to go to the steroids um, or other drugs that uh, alter the way the immune response works. Um, and then the narcotics, obviously, there's a huge crisis with uh, narcotic prescribing and narcotic addiction in the country. But there are times when somebody has vascular disease and really shouldn't be taking the ibuprofen because it's going to increase their heart attack and stroke risk, that the narcotics have a, a role in treating pain here. So sometimes you actually need the narcotics in a thoughtful way prescribed in conjunction with a physician that's monitoring you. So these are alternatives, um, but there is risk to the class of drugs. Okay. All right. Because I, I know I, I had friends years ago, way before I dealt with all this, that, that had various issues with, like, high blood pressure, and they couldn't take ibuprofen. And I remember seeing, like, the warnings on the, on the like, little insert in the, in the bottles and that kind of thing. And, but, like I said, that was way before I ever had to deal with all this. So. Right. So the good side of it is, it, is it's anti-inflammatory, and it really does help the inflammation go down in arthritis. The bad side of it is it can raise the blood pressure, it can upset the kidney function, it can cause ulcers in the stomach or esophagus um, and bleeding in the stomach or esophagus. So those are, you know, the balance has to come out right. So if somebody needs it rarely and um, for, you know, for a discrete time point, like one time a month for a migraine before the cycle starts, that might be a reasonable way to use it. If somebody needs it as a daily long-term medication, it's not a good idea in somebody who's had an aortic dissection or in somebody with diagnosed coronary disease. Okay. All right. So it would be the kind of thing to discuss with their doctor if it was a once in a blue moon kind of thing that they needed to do. Exactly. Okay. All right. Interesting. And let's just say in the beginning that a lot of these kind of things or something that that they would need to discuss on a case-by-case basis with their doctor, but we're giving them more information so that they have, have a starting point with their doctor. Would that be a safe, safe thing to say? Absolutely. As an individual, all of your own risk um, numbers, uh, family history, and concerns should be brought back to your doctor, and you should know your heart risk leaving your doctor's office. Right. I, I know when I go in to talk to my doctor, I like I like to have some starting point 
so I have some clue what I'm talking about. Otherwise, when he starts talking, I'm lost. <laughs> you know? so. It's also smart to write down the things ahead of time that are bothering you. And if you realize that, that those are kind of getting lost in the things that the doctor wants to get covered, just show them the piece of paper. Right. Oh, I, yeah. When I, when I go in with Liz, they're like, oh, no. <laughs> so. But my, well, my cardiologist is a sweetheart, and he just he always hugs me before I leave. So. <laughs> Doctor, he's a sweetheart. So, thank goodness I have a great team that works with me. It sounds like it. Except for that whole "I'm the one that cracked you open" comment. We got we got <laughs> But but you know, she saved my life. I can't be too mean to her. So okay. Now speaking of medications, are there certain heart and blood pressure medications? that have an effect on a person's sex drive and sex desire? Sure. Any medication can. Um, the beta blockers are the notorious drugs for having an effect, especially in men, on just erectile function. At the same time, it generally at the low doses, you don't really see an effect at all. Sometimes if somebody has an underlying depression, the beta blocker can worsen the depression, and that can have a role. The beta blockers at the same time are the key drugs to lower the wall stress on the vessels and are very, very important after a heart attack in preventing arrhythmia and letting the heart recover. So again, it's a balance, just like the non-steroidal drugs are a balance. It's a balance where you're going to want to have open communication about whether or not you have any effect. And most people don't have an effect, but you should know that if you do, it could be the medication. What is a low dose? It matters which drug. So one of the most common drugs is metoprolol, and a low dose would be 25 or 50 milligrams, and a high dose would be 300 or 400 milligrams. Okay. And again, people have very different sensitivities. We're even starting to get into pharmacogenetics, where hopefully over time we'll be able to check somebody's sensitivities before we give drugs. Oh, Um, that would be cool. It would be very cool, and some of the technology to look at how people metabolize different classes of drugs are starting to come out. Yeah, I think pretty much everybody that I've talked to in in any of my support groups is on metoprolol. I mean, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, so metoprolol, you know, has been shown to save lives, and that's why we want to use it. And there can be side effects. Sometimes you can actually stay on the medication or just the time of day or the dose Um, and safely use the medication, and occasionally you can't use the medication and need to change it to something else. But the mortality benefit is worth trying. Right. Oh, yeah, I'm I'm on it. I have been ever since I I first came out of the, the, I mean, well, I'm guessing from as soon as I came out of surgery, but as soon as I woke up, I know I've been on it since then. So it, it seems to be working, so. Yeah, it's a very, very good drug. Yeah, it seems to be. It took them a while to get everything all figured out, but that that one they've been it's been steady since the beginning. So yeah, it does. And again, individually, you you're going to have to it's check the pressure, check the heart rate. Um, now that the home cuffs are available, it's very very helpful to actually have some measurements. Right. So if you have a blood pressure problem, or if you've had a heart attack or an aortic dissection. Um, it's really good to actually use the technology that's available now and keep a log of sort of average times, um, time, date, pressure, pulse, 
and right. bring that with you to your appointment. And it can help a lot, especially if you have a tendency to have higher blood pressure when you're talking to a medical provider or going back into a circumstance where that was stressful for you, like where you got a bad diagnosis or a family member had trouble. So sometimes having your home numbers can really help us to give you a tailored regimen that works better for you and has less side effects. Well, isn't that especially because so many people, when they go to the doctor, their blood pressure spikes, that whole white white coat syndrome or whatever it's called? That's exactly what I'm alluding to. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is the way to figure out is that the problem or not. And another way is exercise testing. And again, when you talk about intimacy, are you safe? What can you do? You know, exercise testing and your exercise capacity is a really good way to figure out are you okay? So um, so you should be able to walk a mile um, on a treadmill. You should be able to, um, to do some things around the house, uh, even at a low level or a moderate level. Um, for example, carrying a laundry basket up the steps or sweeping the floor. Those are sort of good low to moderate level activities that a lot of people do that let you know that you feel okay doing some activity. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I know when, when I first went home, they sent me home with my own um, machine to check my blood pressure and all that, and I had to keep a log for, like, the first first month or so, I think, and then, you know, to make sure everything was okay. Right, and it's probably a good idea at least, like, a couple times a month just to double-check those numbers and make sure that with the changes you've had in life, with diet, with stress, um, with work schedules, that you're still controlled. Right. Well, anytime they've changed my medication, I, I do that. Anytime there's anything really funky going on in life and I'm super stressed, I do that too just to make sure everything's okay. So, yeah. And, and you should probably do it once or twice a month even when you don't have those things. Okay. All right. Good idea. And there are things people get into that can really spike the blood pressure and put your vessels at risk. Funny things like licorice can do that or bitter orange flavor can do that. And those are things you wouldn't really know to look for. And then again, some people start using the ibuprofen and forget that it's a risk. And all of a sudden they check their blood pressure and say, why is it so high? And right. then they look at what's going on. Maybe they changed the salt level in their diet. So it can tell you that something isn't what you think it is before right. you get into trouble. Right. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Never would have thought about orange, but okay, interesting. Bitter, bitter orange flavor. It's an huh. unusual thing, but it, it can increase the blood pressure significantly. That is so strange. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought about yeah. that. All right. Okay, let me see. Now, are orgasms stressful on your heart? So normal activity, normal response, um, there is an increased cardiac output and stress on the heart, absolutely, um, but within a normal range of activity and, and what the body should be able to handle. Okay. Now, you know, we, we like to joke sometimes that our partner takes our breath away. <laughs> now, now, should we be worried if, if we're short of breath before, like during or after sex? Yeah, so if you're having unusual symptoms before, during, or after sex, you should actually stop and talk to your doctor about it. So most people feel like they're exercising, right? right. Or may have their breath taken away for a few seconds 
um, or up to a minute, but it shouldn't be three minutes. You shouldn't feel chest pressure. You shouldn't feel like you're not going to get your next breath. Um, okay. So you should feel like you're active. You should feel like you've, you know, you've exercised, you've done something. You should feel that you have physically exerted yourself, but you shouldn't feel uncomfortable. Okay. So basically the same sort of chest pressure or shortness of breath that would concern us normally, if we get that sort of pressure during sex, then we should be concerned? Exactly. Okay. And again, what? if you can't do the normal things around the house without getting symptoms, you shouldn't try to have sex, right? Okay. Okay. If you, you should be able to do the normal things around the house to sweep a floor, to walk up one flight of steps. Um, you should be able to do that comfortably, um, a, kind of a low-level exertion, and feel okay with that before you go ahead toward sex because that's a little bit more of an uncontrolled situation. Okay. So you will have some extra work that the heart has to do. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Are, are there other sorts of warning signs that we should look for? So the same type of things you should look for if you're having heart problems. If you're having a decline in your endurance for no good reason, if you're getting palpitations when you exert yourself, like the heart jumps or flips or skips when you're exerting yourself, that's something that you want to get checked out. Certainly if you're getting chest pressure or tightness in the chest, especially if it radiates into the jaw or back or arm, um, those are things that, uh, that are really important. So exercise-related discomfort that um, that you wouldn't expect to have should be a warning sign that you don't want to take into the bedroom. So basically, anything that would concern us enough to be checked by the doctor in a normal situation, we should be concerned about. Yeah, and if you have those symptoms during sex, you should be concerned about them and talk to your doctor. Don't be afraid to talk to your doctor and say, hey, you know, this happened when I was having sex. This is something that concerned me because I felt differently than I thought I should feel. Right. All right. That's good. All right. Is it safe to have alcoholic drinks in conjunction with a sexual encounter? So the the question isn't really that. The question is, is it safe? Is it safe to have alcoholic drinks, right? Because again, right. a sexual encounter should be, is part of a normal, healthy life. Well, so, no, no, drinking though is going to kind of dull your senses. So, if you were having warning signs, you wouldn't feel them as much, would you? Well, matters how much you're drinking. <laughs> oh, that's <But> true. <laughs> it, it is, and, and also what your tolerance is. So. You know, the issue with alcohol after a heart event is going to be some, does it interact with my medications, which it can with certain medications, certain statins, certain, um, uh, you know, it can increase the effect of the metoprolol. So one to two medical-sized drinks for most body sizes is usually what's safe. And a medical drink would be a shot of liquor or a 12-ounce beer or a 6-ounce glass of wine. And for most body sizes, you know, one to two glasses is going to be safe and actually very healthy um, and shouldn't dull your senses where you don't feel um, a discomfort in the chest or a warning sign of heart issues. As a matter of fact, it can actually lower your stress level so that you have a little bit more reserve. 
So a little bit of alcohol is actually a good thing. A lot of alcohol is never going to be a good thing because it can actually hurt the cells. So if you go to a toxic level for you, it can hurt the heart, it can hurt the liver, it can certainly make you make um, decisions that aren't good decisions for you, like pushing too hard through symptoms. So it depends on your tolerance, your body size, and also your medication. True. Well, and, and you're going to have warning labels on your, your medications that you've got to keep an eye on also. So. Right. And for example, like transplant patients may have a lot of drug interactions um, where they may frankly want to just talk to their doctor and say, what can I have with my medication regimen? And sometimes a, a pharmacist can be very useful in sorting that out with you too. But it should be you, your body size, your kidney function, your liver function, and your medicine list. Well, and I, I've noticed, too, that there's a lot of times where um, various medications I'm taking have more of an impact on my kidneys, and so every so often, I think it's like every like quarterly, the doctor's sending me to have more kidney testing done and that kind of thing, too. So that's going to have more of an impact on it also. Absolutely. So it's definitely a case-by-case basis. Yeah, you do have to individualize how much is safe. But in general, alcohol in moderation is actually very healthy and can help the vasculature. I've heard that. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, actually in 1954, Chateau Neuf de Pop is the, uh, is the wine that was used in intravenous animal testing um, to prove that there was a very healthy effect of red wine uh, infused uh, for the vasculature. So it's kind of interesting, and that's still a wine in production today. Interesting. Uh-huh. I didn't know that. <laughs> Okay, now let's let's get to the nitty-gritty. Are there any sex positions that pose a higher risk to the heart? Only if you have had heart surgery where you have incisions that you need to take into account. So, Ah. um, you know, immediately after open heart surgery, whether you've had a sternotomy or a thoracotomy, you do have to be very cognizant and um, aware of sternal precautions. Oh, yeah. To try to let the incisions heal. So, um, you know, outside of the healing period, uh, the position shouldn't be, um, you know, most positions shouldn't be anything I would think of uh, changing or altering or recommending. Okay. Now, you mentioned erectile dysfunction a little bit earlier. Is that a side effect of chronic heart failure? So that can actually be a warning sign to somebody that they're having poor blood flow. Oh, Um, so especially if if you look in diabetics, for example, if the vasculature is getting affected, you may not have as good blood flow as you need to have, and that can be a marker that not only do you have poor blood flow to the sex organs, but you have poor blood flow to the heart or the brain or the legs, Um, and that we should just check for arterial disease in other locations can be a warning sign not just for heart failure but for coronary disease or atherosclerosis. Actually, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah, because I know with my dissection, like I said, I, I was stupid and waited a long time to go to the doctor. And that was, I mean, the whole reason, I, I, I really thought I had, had the flu. And the whole reason I went is because my legs got so weak I could barely walk. And, that I mean, that long... I mean, the the blood flow was certainly not going like it was supposed to at all. So that actually makes a whole lot of sense. That was okay. That makes a lot of sense. 
Now, people have different heart conditions. So are, are there guidelines for safe sex? Are, are they the same for people with, with different conditions, like, say, in a large heart, um, valve disorder, people that have had a heart attack for, like, leaky valve? I mean, uh, would would... Yeah, actually, honestly, it's not a really well-studied or well-described field. So I don't know of any particular guidelines, um, except for maybe in the heart failure guidelines, but that's for people who have very weak heart muscle. I haven't seen any medical guidelines or um, discussions in the cardiology literature of, uh, of exact recommendations. You know, I, th- I think there's a lot of individual um, changes in the activity. I think there's a lot of individual um, factors in the medications and the disease processes. Right. Huh. Well, I'll tell you what. If somebody decides they want to do a study about that, you let me know and we will line up volunteers. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Honestly, it's Thanks. really an understudied and under-discussed um, problem. Definitely, and something that's pertinent to everybody. It is, yeah, and absolutely. there's so many, so many variations, and it it should be studied. Hey, stupider yeah. things are studied all the time. So, uh, well, this is again, it's pertinent to everybody. It would be, you know, really worthwhile. And I'm sure there are some small studies or recommendations done, but not like a national guideline or a consensus statement. Um, and, and that definitely could be done. It should be. Well, like I said, when, when you hear about it, let me know and we'll start lining up volunteers for you. Yeah, maybe we'll have to make it happen and have you come as the patient advocate. There you hey, Yes. Exactly. Oh, man, it would be so cool. Well, I'm not far away. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and, and I have... not far from Baltimore. Exactly. I'm not far at all. And, and I have nationwide contacts to line up volunteers for you. So we'll do it. That's awesome. We can start an international study and uh, get it done really quickly. I have national contacts and international contacts. We we could seriously make this happen. That would be so cool. Yeah, it really would. That would that it could be hey, that could be the start of something very cool for us to do. That would be Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. Well, let me let me ask you just a, a basic question as a cardiologist. Do you feel that from a medical perspective, sex and intimacy is beneficial for us? Absolutely. Because I know there's benefits. Now, people may not realize this, but there are health benefits to having sex. Now, I, I think not everybody understands that. <laughs> kind of like I, I always get a kick out of telling people that you can actually, you know, now saying that I have a headache is a reason not to have sex is not good because having sex can actually help you get rid of headaches. I know this for a fact. <laughs> so... So but, that is a that's a research protocol of one, <laughs> one down, I, right? I know. <laughs> um, but but honestly, there are both mental and physical benefits, and certainly there are huge relationship and and uh, and family benefits. Yes. Um, yeah, there yeah. are. So I just I just figured from from a a medical professional, I'd see if you felt that there were actual benefits to people. So that's cool. Oh, absolutely. And again, the goal of medical care is to try to help you normalize your life so that you can do the things that are meaningful in your own life. Yes. Um, And travel is part of that too, right? The goal, you know, part of the goal of getting somebody healthy is that they can go out and do the things that they want to and need to do. 
Yeah. Um, and that they can do it with some confidence and not feel like they're just going to die everywhere they go. Yeah. Um, and it would be that same discussion uh, to take into the bedroom. And again, uh, regular exercise can help tremendously so that you know what you tolerate. And you're doing that in a controlled way where you can start and stop. You have a warm-up and a cool-down and a moderate level of activity, and you see how you feel. And if you're feeling different for no good reason, you know that there's an issue. And right. that is probably the most powerful way to follow your own self and how you're feeling and recognizing if, if you're having a deterioration in your health. Well, I know, like, there's so many people, and, and I've seen it posted over and over again in the forum or in the groups, you know, people, you know, when they first come home from the hospital or they first had their surgery or they've first been diagnosed, you know, because with aortic dissection, everybody doesn't have surgery. Some are medically, you know, maintained because they, they're not to the point where they have to have surgery. And, and they just, you know, they, they post them like, okay, this is kind of a touchy subject and I'm sorry to bring this up, you know. They're like, but can I, can I have sex? Is it safe? And they're just, they're scared. They don't, they don't know if it's something they can do. And it, right, it, and they should talk to the doctor about their particulars because, for example, after a sternal incision, you know, they, they may request that you actually wait four to six weeks for right. the healing of the wounds. Right. Um, and that's going to be more to make sure the bone healing happens and that you have structure um, that's strong enough so that you don't have a setback. We've got all the sternal requirement precautions and all that kind of thing, and you exactly. And again, they should get liberalized as you get out time-wise from the procedure. But the goal of having the procedure at all is to get you your full life back, and right. your full life and your full range of activities, including your sexual relationship. Well, I mean, when when I came out of the hospital, before they allow me to leave the hospital, I mean, they sent me to PT to learn how to wash my hair and how to do dishes and how to cook. And, I mean, I mean, they taught me how to do everything over again, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure you got the famous grabber to tie your shoes or pull up oh. your pants. <laughs> yeah, pull my socks on. and uh, Yeah, exactly. it was... It was like starting from, you know, and, and being <laughs> being intimidated by having to walk up three stairs. I mean, it was bad. It right. was so really bad. Somebody just coming out from a surgery, you know, shouldn't feel also like they have to get right back into that relationship or that they're letting their partner down or letting themselves down. There, there does have to be reasonable times for healing. And right. again, you want to get to the point where you can do those um, simple tasks at a, a decent comfort level before you put yourself in a situation where you may feel like you're stressed or you may feel like you could fail. Right. Well, and, and that's the time, too, when even just having having your partner be understanding and just share an intimacy of just, just you know, just being held by your partner and feeling safe. Just just having them put their put their arm around you and feeling safe is huge at that point. And that will make you feel human too. Yes. Well, and and you know that that's a big point, and that's that's something I've I've had conversations with the the person I'm seeing now is just being treated like a human being that's not going to break. That's humongous. It's nice to be treated like a normal person that's not going to break. Sometimes when you have disease like you've had, you do have to work at that. And yeah. you want to do the things like the healthy diet, the activities, um, the exercise, 
a good sleep pattern, you want to do things to renew and nourish and heal the right. damage that's there. Right. Yes. Well, and the thing is, even even just being with somebody that's that's being aware, because there's you know like like I mean I I can be fine one minute and and the whole world could be spinning five seconds later. Through, through no fault of anything I've done, <laughs> just, you know, all of a sudden I, I just get really super dizzy. So just just be aware that that my personal state of being can change within like a few seconds' time, you know. But but don't treat me like a complete idiot cause, or helpless because I'm not. Right, so but it, understand that if you're feeling something and you need to stop, you need to stop. Exactly. Right? So it's, or you uh, need to modify. Yeah, yeah. Right. Just like in Pilates, there can be modifications that work better for a particular person based on where they have pain or <laughs> discomfort or a level that's just too high or too hard. Um, and, and modifications are very appropriate and pleasant. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you just you get creative. <laughs> it can be a beautiful thing. So. Exactly. And you have somebody who cares enough to help you do that. That's it. Well, me, you know, being with somebody with, with EMT training, very helpful. <laughs> so. oh, that's not going to happen to everybody. You know, and it's a nice thing when it does. <laughs> so. You are hoping that they're off work and don't need to use their training. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> that's, communication is huge and incredibly helpful. And like I said, just uh, what I always suggest on here, you know, be be aware of your partner. Watch their reactions when when you're with them and that's so much more important with this kind of thing too is is you know be be aware of how your partner is reacting to to everything around them and just you know pay pay attention pay attention to what they're saying what they're doing how they're reacting and and if you need to if you need to stop for a minute stop just watch and react as you need to react and just you know be in the moment with them and react as you need to It'll make a huge difference. Did we cover the warning signs of heart attack and heart failure for a woman? Because I don't want anyone to leave this show and not have those very clear in their mind. I, I think the thing that we need women to really realize is, number one, you're a person too. And yes. if you're not doing well, it's not because of everything around you. It may be because of something internal. And you do have to recognize that sometimes anybody needs maintenance and that yours will too. Yes. So women have to give their body what they need as far as nutrition and exercise and sleep. That being said, many women think of a heart attack or heart symptom the way a man does or what you see on TV with a clenched fist over the chest and intense pain. And that is not what we see with women coming in with heart problems. Most people, most women will come in with a pressure or discomfort and not an intense pain um, with a heart attack. Now, dissection, most people describe more as a tearing or boring straight through the middle. That's different. But the heart attack is usually more pressure and a discomfort, sometimes with nausea, sometimes with vomiting, sometimes with fatigue sometimes with things like uh, fluid buildup or breathing problems. 
Fluid buildup can be a sign of left or right-sided heart failure and can be very important. It can also be a sign, like when you posted the picture of your legs, of venous disease and just uh, varicose veins or venous insufficiency. So it may or may not come back from the heart, but it's really important to find out why you have it because it might be that it does come back from the heart. Well, even after the surgery, too, they told me to keep a real close eye on any inflammation in my legs if it gets if it's more than a certain amount that you know definitely be a very aware of that and well and they sent me home with scales too to make sure that my weight didn't fluctuate more than a certain amount you know and, right. and, like, and if it does then you probably need to take a little bit of extra diuretic right. lower the salt in your diet and make sure your doctor knows about that right what will cause the legs to, to swell up like that just spontaneously um Pressure coming back from the right side of the heart is one of the things. Um, certainly we're always worried about blood clots. Usually that would be one, one side more than the other. Um, anything that makes the filling pressure high into the heart or the back pressure high coming back from the lungs can make fluid build up in the legs. Okay. Could it, could it just spike for like a day or two and then, then be okay again? Usually if that's what it is, then it's more related to how much salt you're taking in and how much fluid you're retaining. Okay. Really, but really, really bad swelling up like that, though? Well, I I don't know how bad you mean. A lot of people get some uh, swelling in their ankles and their rings are tight, can't get the ring on and off um, if they have too much salt. Right. Okay. I I just... uh, was thinking because I, I had that happen one day and it was it was really really bad to the point of like I, I couldn't even see my ankles or anything almost yeah, that if you've never had that and all of a sudden you have that you need to get your heart checked that day okay okay that's five weeks later that day <laughs> okay yeah I know yeah. I I know now <laughs> I know now well but somebody listening might not right so why is heart disease the number one killer of women in the United States so in the United States, our biggest health problems in many places are high blood pressure and obesity and diet. Um, and because of that, we have a lot of atherosclerotic disease. And although we think of coronary disease as a man's disease, one in two women to one in three women die of heart disease. So it's very, very prevalent. Um, and it's underappreciated. So if one in 20 women die of breast cancer and one in three women die of heart disease, we really do need to be aware in each of us that we, are, um, that we may have and that we need to deal with our own heart risk factors, most of which are modifiable. Not all, but most. Wow, one in three and one in 20. That's, wow. Right? I don't think I realized it was quite that bad. It is. It's very, very prevalent. Hmm. Wow. How many How many women do you think are out there and just have no clue there's something going on with their heart? Probably one in three. <laughs> wow. um, I, th- I think, again, that women, we see women come in when they have to come in, but they've right. often ignored symptoms for long periods of time. Many times women will come in now uh, because they're aware that someone in their family had heart disease. And that's a wonderful opportunity to say, well, it runs in my family. I know it's very prevalent. What is my risk? So learning to look at your own risk factors, which would be your blood pressure, your cholesterol, 
and specifically the good and the bad cholesterol numbers, um, your weight. And there's the apple versus the pear discussion where abdominal weight is much more atherogenic than uh, fat in other places. So that really uh, cutting back the abdominal weight first is really important, lowering your heart risk. So blood pressure, tobacco use is incredibly important, cutting that fat out. So all of these new forms of tobacco are bringing more tobacco and nicotine products into people, and they cause uh, constriction and narrowing of the vessels and make people much more prone to heart events. So that's become a very prevalent issue as well. All right, so if somebody knows that heart disease runs in their family, at what age should they get checked out? Um, they should be talking to their doctor. For example, they should have a cholesterol check by age 20 and know what their cholesterol is running. They should know their blood pressure every time they go to the pediatrician or adult doctor. And there's new guidelines uh, that have increased the awareness and numbers for uh, pediatric and adult diagnosis of blood pressure. So that's actually very important. As you get older, say 25 to 30, you should actually sit down with your doctor and say, what is my risk on some of these risk scores? As far as family history, blood pressure, tobacco use or history, cholesterol, blood sugar. So those are things that are generally modifiable. Um, and would put you at different risk levels. There's something called a calcium score that can be done really in the 40s, 40s to 50s. And that's about a five-minute CAT scan without contrast that will tell us if you have been developing plaque in your own heart arteries over your lifetime. And that can be a very valuable marker. It's called a coronary calcium score. And for people at intermediate risk, it can really change what you do about it. So that might be a good time to discuss. And then for people in their 50s and 60s, that's where we really start talking about exercise testing, unless it's somebody who has a regular exercise program. I think so many people don't want to tackle this kind of stuff. They're like, oh, I'm too young. I don't need to worry about that. You know, and just better to, better to check ahead of time, you know. Right, and again, these diseases develop over a lifetime, and that one minute when you have a problem, you're seeing the effect of all that. But right. modifications over the lifetime are what could prevent it. Well, it's like, I mean, I, I had no signs, and I even, when the doctors came in and all this, and they were talking to me about my, my dissection, I looked at them, and I, I realized that, you know, it, it could happen again. So I, I told them, I said, okay, be brutal with me. What, what did I miss? What what did the doctor miss, and you know what do I need to do to not have this happen again? And they they were looking through my records, and it's like you, you didn't miss anything. You know, there's there's no family history. We we don't have any idea why this happened to you. And, you know, there there weren't any signs. Also, with the aortic dissection, though, you want to look at your family history, and you also want to look at at things like hypermobility and connective tissue disease. Is there mm -hmm. Marfan's disease in the family? Um, you know, are there other things that would contribute to connective tissue problems that might make the vessels weak that should right. be looked at in you and in other family members and that may have other ramifications? Because it is rare and it can come with certain genetic conditions. That's what I keep telling my brother and he keeps tuning me out. But 
<laughs> yeah, so the first degree family member of a dissection patient should be screened, and that would be parents, brothers, sisters, children. And then yep. anybody who screens out from that, their first degree relatives should be screened. That's what I've told my dad and my brother, and they won't listen to me. They should listen to you. Uh, you well, have to play them the podcast. I don't. <laughs> they, they don't listen to me on anything, but I keep trying. <laughs> so. But it was cool because the, the, the doctors at UVA put together a really nice letter for me for them to take to the doctor and the whole, the whole works. But, but yeah, I, yeah, I, I try. <laughs> so. But, well, and, and, well I, I started a website, actually, for, for listeners. I started a website called aorticdissectionawareness.com. And I've got information about aortic dissections, aortic aneurysms, about Marfan syndrome, um, Ehlers, what, what is it? Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. That's it, thank you. It, every, time I go, every time I go to UVA for my, my uh, now annual, I'm very excited, I'm now annually being checked. You know the full thing where you go in for like the entire day for all of oh, all that's of my, wonderful. My yeah, I, I was thrilled. They finally have me only once a year now, not every six months. Because the the dissection hasn't increased over two years now, which I was thrilled to get that news. But every time I go in for all those, I, I get one additional tidbit of information, you know, that that helps me out. Each one of the the nurses or somebody has some little tidbit I can add to my my repertoire. But I've got all kinds of neat information on the website, and and whenever I get news stories or whatever, I try to add it to there. And I, I shared a, a cool story of mine on my my two year aortic an, uh, anniversary. Well, um, happy aortiversary! Oh yes, it, it's funny. The the second one hit me a lot bigger than the first one did. So it's uh it, it's an interesting journey, and I've met some very cool people. So just trying to share what I'm learning and helping other people because it was like I said, life changing to say the least. Yeah, that is a huge event. Oh, no joke. But, well, and, and it, it's a very new normal that you come out of it with, you know. But the the option, the, the doctor was very clear the option was not seeing the next day. So I'm I'm thrilled to be alive. Like, yeah, you are, you are very lucky, and you must have had a wonderful medical team. Um, I did. And, you know, we definitely want to encourage people to recognize symptoms and go in earlier and not have to count on that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and a lot of places, you know, they don't have what was available to you. People have to be transferred to somewhere where they do have that. Yeah, I was I was very fortunate to only be 30 minutes away from UVA. So they were they were talking about flying me to, to somewhere else. But thank goodness um, I was only 30 minutes out of, out of UVA, which, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic facility. Yeah, so. and that's, you know, like UVA here, we fly people here at Maryland. We fly people in get them here any way we can, but that time is critical. Yeah. So for something like an aortic dissection, it's 1% per hour death rate with the dissection. Right. Uh, so getting somebody into the operating, diagnosed and into the operating room fast is really critical to save their life. Well, and, and seeing as how I, I, you know, had made the, the stupid decisions I had, and it, it was, I was five weeks out by the time the doctors diagnosed me. You know, so, I mean, at, at that point, I was so far past the, the whole one-hour thing. I mean, the, the doctor, I'm not kidding you, the doctor actually had orderlies standing on either side of me while I was on the gurney. They they were holding me by the shoulder and wouldn't let me move on the stretcher. I mean, it was it was that critical. So Yeah, it was, and it is that critical. Yeah, it was. So it was, uh, well, and, and then I have, I have horrible veins, okay, so they couldn't even get the needles into my arm to, to get everything 
going to, to get me into surgery, the doctor was in there trying to help them get a needle into my, my veins. So it was, it was ridiculous in the trauma unit. So it was, uh, it was quite a night. Yeah, I'm sure. And I'm sure it was intense for your family, too. So and all this, you know, it is important that we look at family members, too, and see how it affected. And when you get back to sexuality and intimacy, you know, your family members saw you go through something that made you very fragile, um, where there was a mortality risk, and they're dealing with that, too. So having some patience with them is going to be important also in making sure they understand that you are healing and healed. Um, but they also know that there's some increased risk and they've been through a risk. Right. So having that discussion and understanding with your partner is going to be very important as well. Everybody close to you has been through. I mean, I even two and a half right. years later, I've got a friend now that, that she still just, she she, I mean, she still looks shell-shocked when she talks about it because she came to see me while I was in a coma. She she can't even hardly talk about it. So yeah, and and that can happen to your partner or your child or your parents as well, and they're just a little bit afraid of you. And you know, again, doing things like going for a walk, or going to the gym together, walking on the treadmill, or going for a swim uh, as you recover, those are things that not only are good for you, but may help the person that went this through, you know, went through this with you, to see you as a healthy, active person. Right. So some of the normalcy is going to be really important for your relationship, for your partner, for their health as well. Yeah. As I was, I was trying to explain to my dad. He was, he was telling people that, that right after the surgery, he was telling people that I was fine. Everything was fine. And so I was trying to explain to him what the aorta actually looks like and that, you know, it's, it's not 100%. And, and, you know, they did a partial repair and, and there's still a dissection and all this. And so I was trying to explain to him what it looks like. And so I, I said, now, you, you know when you have a, a leaky garden hose, you know, and there's a tear in it? He says, you mean the ones I throw in the, in the trash? I went, yes, let's start there. <laughs> let's start with that visual, Dad. He says, okay, okay, I'm, I'm there. I said, okay, that's what my aorta looks like. He's like, oh, you know, so, I said, okay, are, are, you, are you a little bit more clear on where we're at now? You know, it's, it's interesting how you have to explain things to people sometimes. Right, and also what their perspective or understanding is because, you know, they may still be thinking, what is an aorta? So yeah. you also want to wanna kind of gauge their understanding and explain the things that you had to learn um, because they're going to be behind you in that. Well, I have no idea how big the aorta is. I, I, you know, I, I realized the parts are connected to the heart, but until I started doing some research after the fact, I didn't realize how big it is. I'm like, well, now that explains why there were so many problems going on. So, yeah, so it's, it's an education for everybody in the family. Absolutely. But it was, it was like, so quite the learning experience for everybody. Yeah, and it still is, right? Oh, yeah, daily. Daily it's a learning experience. But at least I'm here to keep learning, so that's the important part. I am so happy that you were here with me today, and I am hoping that the listeners got good information and learned some great things. And listeners, I am going to have a page on the website with the um, warning signs of heart failure and heart attack, just because I want to make sure that there are no doubts in anybody's mind about that. 
and it will link from the show page. So if you go to www.readyforloveradio.com slash heartconcerns, you will easily find the link to the page with those signs. And it's also on my my um, other website, which is um, aortic-sectionawareness.com. So either one of those websites will give you the information. This heart month. And the American Heart Association webpage is also a good resource and maybe a good link for the warning signs and symptoms and the statistics. Definitely. So if, if you have concerns and you have questions, talk to your doctor. And if they don't listen, speak louder and speak up for yourself. You need to do it. And listeners, I've been telling you about the uh, Rebel's Guide to Love, Sex, and Happiness Summit and my interview is going to air this Saturday. So if you haven't signed up yet, also on the website is your link to free access to that. You've got to sign up now or you're going to miss the interview. So, Dr. Fisher, thanks again for being with me. I really, really appreciate you coming and taking the time to do this with me today. You are very welcome and I'm happy to help. Awesome. I am very glad that you, you could do this today. And listeners, I'll see you next time on... Ready for Love Radio.